All right. Good morning, Christ community. Great to see all of you here. So glad you're here. Greetings to our West Campus that meets at Northridge uh, this morning and to our Traditions venue um, in the Fireside Room. So glad all of you are joining us. As many of you know, this past week was uh, our church-wide fast, um, and many of us chose to fast from either food or from some aspect of technology for all or for part of this past week in order to really free up time and free up our hearts to seek the Lord more earnestly. And for those of you who did that, um, way to go. Um, really, really, fasting is not easy. I was just talking to someone who fasted from technology, certain aspects of technology. She was like, it was so hard. I couldn't believe how often I, you know, turned to this stuff. And so, um, and, and it's just hard. Fasting is not easy. And so I'm proud of you for those of you who, who went for it. For me personally, um, I fasted from food and I was just reminded of how much I love food and not just the taste of food. It's all the things associated with it. So watching a football game without being able to eat a snack, you know, that was tough. And, and going home at night and just thinking, oh, I can't look forward to dinner and the smell walking in the door, you know, all those things uh, that we associate and that are a part of food. And it was hard, but it was worth it. It was so worth it. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I was thinking of how I would summarize kind of where I'm at today after this past week. And I, this, is, this is how I would word it. I would say right now, food, food tastes so good right now. And Jesus tastes even better than ever. You know, I mean, that's how it feels. It was like, man, food, I'm enjoying food a lot now. Um, but also there's a sense in which um, I love Jesus um, even more and just that seeking him this past week. And, and that really is my heart for all of us, whether you fast or not, that's just my heart for all of us. And my prayer um, for, for our church this year, that our love for Jesus would grow and that he really would be our ultimate longing and our, our primary pursuit, uh, which is kind of what we talked about last week. Okay, so if you have your Bible or, or Bible app, uh, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 15. We're, we're continuing our journey through this amazing book of Luke, which gives us this eyewitness-based account of Jesus' life and ministry. And we find ourselves in a portion, several chapters here in the book of Luke, where Jesus' focus is on, his teaching focus is on the kingdom of God, on the values and the priorities and the heart of God. Now, from Jesus' perspective, honestly, there is nothing more important for us to grasp than this. He desperately wants us to understand how the kingdom of God works because it is radically different than the values and the perspectives that we often embrace, even as believers in Jesus. I mean, in many respects, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Now, for those of you who are watching Stranger Things, that may cause your, your flesh to crawl a little bit, that phrase. Um, but, but here's the deal. The upside-down kingdom that Jesus is offering is the opposite of the Stranger Things upside-down kingdom, okay? In Stranger Things, the upside-down kingdom is about darkness and about evil. But for Jesus, the upside-down kingdom represents joy and represents freedom and peace. So Jesus is actually calling us out of the darkness and the evil in our lives, in order to experience the joy and the freedom of his kingdom. So in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, he often completely flips our paradigm of who God is and, and of how we are to live our lives. And this is especially true in Luke chapter 15. I mean, this chapter is arguably one of the most powerful sections of Scripture because of what it reveals to us about God's heart towards sinners, 
How does God feel about sinners? See, how we answer that question has huge implications, not only for our own spiritual lives, because we're all sinners, um, but also in terms of how we view other people, especially other people who are not embracing Christianity. What should our attitude be towards them? This is a, that is a, a really, really important question that Christianity, honestly, Christianity throughout the centuries has not always answered very well. We've not answered it correctly. We've often missed God's heart on this particular point, which has resulted in things like the Crusades and Salem witch trials and all sorts of other horrendous incidents. And so, so this topic that we're looking at today is extremely important for us. There is significant damage that occurs when we miss God's heart on this question. How does God feel about sinners? Okay, which raises the question, how do we answer that? I mean, how do we find the answer to that question? How do we find out how God feels about sinners? Now we may say, well, just look at the Bible. Just look at the Bible. Well, that's great, but there are, there are passages in the Old Testament where the Israelites wipe out entire cities as a sign of God's judgment. So, so if we're just looking at those passages in the Bible, we would have to conclude God hates sinners, right? That he hates anyone who's not worshiping him or obeying him. And honestly, there are some Christians today, Christians uh, today, who basically adopt this idea that God's primary posture toward anyone who is not a part of them, anyone who's not following him, is anger, you know, like Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. And, and not surprise, that's their posture towards anyone who's not, you know, whatever, a part of them. It's just anger. And not surprisingly, you know, some Christians choose to walk away from their faith because of this issue. Right, because of, of how certain Christians posture themselves. And then the, these, Christi the, the, these people that are wrestling with are unable to kind of reconcile that view of God, always being angry with their own perception of who God is. And so how, again, how do we answer this question about God's heart toward sinners? If we only use the Old Testament to determine how God feels about sinners, we're, we're going to miss a huge part of the story that God is writing. Our perspective will be incomplete which means that our answer to this question will be incomplete. See, what, what, what we've got to understand is that what the violence and the judgment and the rebellion of the Old Testament, what those things ultimately point to is God's solution to all of this. And that solution is the person of Jesus. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus fully reveals to us what God is like. So anything that we see happening in the Old Testament must be subsumed under the person of Jesus. Because the Old Testament only gives a partial understanding. Jesus gives full revelation. Right? God fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus. So if we want to know how God feels about sinners, the most accurate, complete, informed way to answer that question is to look at Jesus to look at how he interacted with and how he treated and viewed sinners. Which brings us to Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Okay, so do you see the dynamic that's playing out in this scenario? So on one hand, you have Jesus who is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors in that day were the scum of the earth, okay? They were especially hated by the Jews because they were fellow Jews who had been hired by the Romans to tax them. And they they would often exact taxes that, you know, just exorbitant taxes, and they lived in big houses. They were greedy and, and corrupt and all these things. And so the tax collectors were were bad news. The sinners that Luke refers to were people who were living sinful lifestyles. Or the, in, in terms of that culture, people, you know, they were, they were partiers, right? They were prostitutes. They were people with questionable reputations. And everyone in the community knew that. These were people that would never darken the door of a synagogue. And Luke tells us that these kinds of people, these immoral sinners and these social outcasts, they're the ones who are hanging around Jesus. They're listening to his teaching. Now remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. He reveals to us what God is like. And here in this passage, broken, sinful people, those that society deemed as moral failures, those that the religious community deemed as moral failures, these are the people that are flocking to Jesus. But not everyone is flocking to him. Right? Not everyone is. Luke tells us about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, these were the religious experts, right? These were the morally pure people who who spent their lives diligently following God's moral code and teaching other people to do the same. And they see what's happening. They see these people flocking to Jesus, and they're they're disgusted by it. They're mumbling, they're grumbling to each other, murmuring and grumbling to each other. Look at him. He calls himself a rabbi a holy person, yet he spends his time with these rabble, right? With these sinners. Now, actually, Luke uses a, a, an even more descriptive word here. It's not just that Jesus, you know, hangs out with these people. The word the Pharisees actually use in their complaint is that Jesus welcomes sinners. He welcomes them. This word means to receive kindly into friendship. It means to accept them. It speaks of Jesus' heart and attitude towards these people. He welcomes them. Now, for the Pharisees, God's kingdom, God's kingdom was all about external performance. It just was. It was all about following the rules externally. It was all about moral purity, following God's command, these commands that God had given, and then added several hundred more or whatever. Um, See, that was the Pharisees' paradigm. It was all about externals. And when that is your kingdom paradigm, when your kingdom paradigm, when your when when your understanding of the, how the relationship with God works, your relationship with God works, when that's all about rules, when it's all about kind of following commands and all that stuff, what what happens is inevitably you will naturally look with disdain at anyone who's not following your rules as well as you are. When that's your paradigm for the Catholic kingdom works, you naturally will look with stain upon anyone who's not following your rules, who's not following God's rules, anyone who's failed to live up to your standard of, of purity, which is exactly what's happening here. The religious leaders looked down on these sinners. They felt morally superior. They they avoided hanging out with these people because of how it might impact their own reputation, right? And folks, here's the deal. Every one of us is vulnerable to this. Every one of us is vulnerable to this. When our understanding of the kingdom 
is about moral performance, when it's about external behavior, it inevitably leads to this separatistic, self-righteous approach towards people who are far from God. We avoid them. We look down on them. We feel morally superior. We feel like God loves us more because of our good behavior. And here's what we often don't realize. This attitude that we have, this attitude gets projected whether we realize it or not, it gets projected. I mean, people can, can smell this a mile away. In, in his book, uh, Unchristian by David Kinnaman, he's a researcher, and he, he did a lot of research interviewing 16 to 29-year-olds um, who were not in the, of the Christian faith. He interviewed them, asked them all sorts of questions. And at, at of, out of all this research, one of the things he discovered, one of their primary perceptions of Christians is that Christians are, you can probably fill the word, fill in the blank here, judgmental, right? Uh, all of us kind of, we, we're, we're aware of that, 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 that their perception of Christians is that Christians are judgmental. They're quick to find faults in other people. They're quick to point out sins and wrongs in other people. They always think they're right. And in the book, he writes, would you be eager to hear the input of a person who thinks he or she is always right, who often gives you an earful of unsolicited advice and who does not seem particularly interested in your opinions? Would you be interested in hearing input from that person? No, none of us are. None of us would be. And yet, that's how we often posture ourselves. That's how we're perceived. See, often we are just like the muttering Pharisees in this story, looking down on people who drink too much, who use the Lord's name in vain, who are pursuing a sexually immoral lifestyle or whatever. And, and so, so in response to the Pharisees muttering, Jesus God in the flesh seizes this moment to teach three parables, um, which in a very powerful way reveal his heart, the heart of God towards sinners. Now, we're going to look at the first two of these parables today, and then we're going to look at the third next week and the week after, because there's a lot in that third parable. So look with me, beginning in verse 3. Um, then, then Jesus told this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. Okay, now there, Jesus uses two very similar scenarios to communicate his teaching, one involving a man, one involving a woman. Um, and and what, was, what is immediately clear in both of these situations is that something very precious is lost. 
Something very precious is lost. In the first scenario, a shepherd loses one of his sheep. In the second scenario, a woman loses a very valuable coin. Now, both of these items have to do with these people's livelihood, right? Sheep and a valuable coin. They are both incredibly important, incredibly precious to each of these people. I mean, if I lose a dollar bill from my wallet, no big deal, right? I'm not going to take any time to search for it. But if I lose a hundred bucks from my wallet, or I lose my wallet, uh, or I lose my car keys, I'm on my knees, right? I'm, I'm looking under every piece of furniture. I'm not stopping until I find it. See, this story, these two stories, they are not simply about something being lost. These stories are about something precious and valuable being lost. Now think about what Jesus is communicating by telling these stories in response to the Pharisees muttering. See, who do these precious and valuable objects in these stories represent? The tax collectors and sinners. These people who are not living moral lives. These people who are not following God. These people who have given themselves over to sexual sin or to greed or immorality or drunkenness or whatever. These are the ones whom God deems as precious and valuable. Think about that. In fact, just take a moment. Think of, don't do this out loud, but just kind of in your mind, think of the worst sinner that you know, okay? Um, and the, the person in your circle of influence or awareness that is farthest from God in terms of what they say, in terms of how they live at your school or your workplace or in your family or sports team or whatever, you know, whatever kind of those, those things are. Maybe it's, it, it, it's some, I don't know, some, someone in some circle of influence, but you just, just think of that person, right? now. The f person who is farthest from God, just think about them for a moment, maybe have their, the, their face kind of in your mind for a moment. And as that person is there in your mind, I want you to think about this question. How does God feel towards them? See, how does God feel towards them? Well, Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us they are precious and valuable to him. Do you and I see them that way? See, do you and I see them through this, the lens of God's heart? Do we see them through the heart of Jesus? This is so important. In fact, I want to take this idea even a, a bit further here by unpacking the analogy that Jesus uses in these stories. See, each of these items, think about this, each of these items was lost. Now, this idea of lostness completely changes our paradigm of sin. Follow me here. In a, in a performance paradigm of sin, sin is a person's decision to not do what we're supposed to do, right? So there's this standard of behavior, and, and there's, there's these rules that God wants me to follow, and whenever I choose not to do that, I, I sin. I break the rule. See, that's kind of how we often view sin. It's sort of in this performance paradigm. But what if we thought about sin in the way Jesus describes it here? Sin is about being lost. You ever been lost I remember getting briefly lost on a hike with a couple of my kids when they were very young. It was only for a few minutes but, that I felt lost, but man, it was, it was a scary, unsettling few minutes because when you're lost, you're no longer on the path that feels known or familiar. 
You don't know where you're going. You don't know how to get out of that. There's no way to, change, you know, to kind of get your bearings. You feel out of control. You feel powerless. You feel isolated. You feel in the dark, which is exact. That's how we feel when we're lost. And think about that. That's exactly how we experience sin, isn't it? It's exactly what sin causes to happen in our lives. When we choose to do something we know is wrong or we choose a pathway continuing in that, it initially may feel kind of pleasurable to do that, but it, le it will eventually leave us isolated and alone. We're not able to kind of get our bearings. We're no longer able to kind of think clearly and see what's right. We lose our ability to discern and exercise self-control as this behavior takes more and more control of our lives. See, sin causes us to lose our way. It causes us to lose sight of what's truly valuable and what's truly important. It causes us to lose sight of how God feels about us and to lose sight of the pathway that he's calling us to pursue. See, that's the ultimate result of sin. It's this experience of lostness. Sin causes us to be lost, to feel lost. So let me just ask, what do you see when you look at people? What do we see when we look at people who are regularly and freely choosing a lifestyle that's very, very far from God? Do we see someone who is breaking the rules? Shame on them. Or do we see someone who has lost their way? So someone who is trying to find life and meaning in things that are not going to satisfy. So someone who has allowed darkness, really, to hinder their ability to see clearly and to choose what is ultimately good for them. Which do we see? See, when the Pharisees looked at the people hanging around Jesus, all they saw were failures. All they saw were losers, people who didn't have what it takes to really follow God. But what Jesus saw and what Jesus sees in people like that is people who have lost their way. They've lost their way. People who ultimately long for wholeness and goodness, just like all of us. And they long for the love of God that God bring in their lives. That's ultimately what they long for. Even if they were not aware of it, that's what they were created for. They long for that. See, is that how you and I view the people around us who seem to be very far from God? Do we see them as moral failures or as people who have simply lost their way and who deep within long to experience the love and the acceptance and the joy and the peace and the forgiveness that God alone can provide? How do we view the people around us? Let me get even more personal here for just a moment. How do you feel towards yourself after you sin? You feel like a failure whom God is angry at and ready to throw the book at you? Or do you feel precious and valuable to God, realizing the choice you made was not in line with his heart, and now you're ready to get back on track towards him? See, how do we experience God? How do we perceive God in our own sin? How does God feel towards sinners? Towards those out there? Towards us? How, do, how does he feel towards sinners? Jesus shows us exactly how he feels. But it's very different than how we often view ourselves. It's very different than how we often view other people who are far from God. 
Now, there's another thing that happens in, this, in these two stories that further reveals God's heart. Not only is something that is precious and valuable lost, the second thing that happens here is that a diligent search ensues. A diligent search ensues. So the woman diligently searches her home for the lost coin, right? She's sweeping the house. She's turning over furniture. She's searching every nook and cranny until she finds it. And the shepherd, <coughs> he leaves his 99 sheep. He leaves his 99 sheep to go look for the lost sheep until he finds it. He leaves his livelihood. He leaves his flock in order to find this one who is lost. See, this is not the heart of a distant, uncaring, angry God. It's not. This is the heart of a loving father. It's the heart of a loving father. I remember one time losing one of my young children for just a few minutes in Home Depot. Um, and um, I don't think I ever told Raylene about it, so uh, please don't tell her. Um, but uh, but now, now, can you imagine me in that moment? I realize I got four kids and one of them I, I don't have with me and is lot. Can you imagine me in that moment just saying, hey, you know what? We've got four kids and it's only one that's lost. <laughs> I mean, 75%, you know, that's not bad, right? That's not bad. Um, I mean, no parent would ever say that. I mean, when I realized my child was lost, I was freaking out. And that is a normal parental response. That is a loving response. And according to Jesus, that's God's response toward lost sinners. He is diligently at work to find them and to bring them into his fold. God is pursuing all people. He longs for every person to find him and experience the life they were created to experience in him. Now, how does this work functionally? Maybe some of you are thinking this, and I'm right with you here. How does this work in a world where there are billions of people who, don't know, who know nothing of Jesus? I mean, in a world where thousands of people die every day without ever hearing the name of Jesus. I mean, how does all of this work? I don't know. I don't know. I suspect that God has a much bigger time frame that he's operating in. And that there are a lot of things about the afterlife that we don't fully understand. And I'm happy to leave that in his jurisdiction. What I do know, what I do know is that Jesus shows us what God's heart is like. And in Jesus, in Jesus, we see a God who is actively pursuing lost sinners because they are precious and valuable to him. He doesn't want them living in their lostness because that's not what they were created by him to experience. He longs for them to experience life in him. That's his heart. And it's not just here in Luke 15 that we see that. Um, another example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And folks, when God wants something, he's going to pursue it. Right? He's going to pursue it. Now, there's one more truth in these stories that furthers our understanding of God's heart towards sinners. And this is the third truth here. An incredible celebration happens when the lost item is found, right? Both the shepherd and the woman call their friends and their neighbors to celebrate. 
Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I have found my lost coin. There is this huge celebration that occurs when these precious items are found, just like us. You know, when we find, when we find our wallet, it's like, oh, man, let's go out to eat, you know. <laughs> let's celebrate. I mean, there's this sense of relief and joy when a precious, when an item, a precious item that's lost is found. And, and Jesus then, he drives home this truth in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, Jesus wants us to know that heaven rejoices. Heaven rejoices when a person who is lost is found. There is a huge celebration that happens. Now, we, we dare not miss the critical response that Jesus mentions in the passage I just read. The critical response he mentions that enables us to experience this amazing transformation to happen. That this, this transformation from being lost to being found. I mean, that's a huge transformation. It's an amazing thing. And Jesus makes it very clear. This transformation from being lost to being found happens because of one response on our end. And that response is repentance. Repentance. See, there is a decision that we as people must make in order to allow ourselves to be found. And this is where the analogy breaks down in the first two stories, because in these stories, the objects were found because of the diligence of the woman and the shepherd, right? The sheep and the coin, they were just sitting there, right? They had nothing to do with being found. But when it comes to our, our spiritual lives, when it comes to our relationship with God, no matter how diligently God is pursuing us, the ultimate decision to be found is ours. Because God does not force anyone to turn to him. He doesn't force anyone to want him. So the ultimate decision to be found in our relationship with God is ours. Will we repent? And turn to God. That's what repentance is. It's just to admit our need and, 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 and to turn to God. The, the entryway into a relationship with God is not your religious performance. It is not how nice a person you are. It's not how often you've been to church. It's not the kind of upbringing you've had. It's none of that. It is none of that. The entryway into a relationship with God is through repentance and faith. It's a willingness to admit we're lost and that we need a savior, that we need Jesus, and then we look to him. See, I mean, isn't that, isn't that exactly the case when we're physically lost? I mean, think about it. This is exactly the case. And for most men here, what is the last thing we want to do when we're lost? Admit we're lost, right? We don't want to admit it. We can figure it out. We're not going to ask for directions. We can figure it out. How well does that usually work out for us? Uh, not very well. And see, that's exactly how the Pharisees approached their spiritual lives. It's exactly the same way. They just refused to admit they were lost. They, they didn't need any help. They didn't think they did. They didn't need a savior. They, they didn't need any of that because they were morally pure. They were the good people. They were following God, right? They were model citizens. And as Jesus points out here, there is no rejoicing in heaven over that kind of self-righteousness. None. 
What causes high fives in heaven is when a lost sinner who has chosen to go their own way suddenly realizes they're lost and they can't fix this on their own and they look to Jesus who has lovingly been pursuing them all along and they find in Jesus all that their hearts ultimately long for, acceptance and forgiveness and love and a a sense of purpose and heaven throws a party whenever that happens. (laughs) So back to this initial question. How does God feel towards sinners? He loves them. (laughs) He values them. He pursues them. He longs for them to look to him for life and for help. And when they do that, they are no longer lost, but instead are found entering into this life that God created them to experience. That's what we've learned in the passage. So that leads to this question. What do we do with this? How do we respond to this passage? How do we respond to the truths that Jesus is communicating here? Let me offer two very specific suggestions. Two specific responses. First response, there may be some of you here who need to realize that you're lost. You need to realize that you're lost. If you're depending on your good works to get you to God, or if as you look at your life, you realize you have not been following God. You have not been looking to Jesus. You've just been trying to do your own thing and you kind of feel lost that you don't, the direction, no sense of bearings, kind of lost a sense of right. And just everything seems kind of out of whack. Some of us here, we just need to realize that we're lost and we're missing out on the life that God desires for us. The love and the acceptance and the relationship and the forgiveness that he offers because he has a way better path for you than being lost. He wants you to be found. And, and he just wants you to turn to him and to repent and turn to him and receive his forgiveness in his life. And so if that's you, I want to take a moment. We're not done with the sermon. here, not done with the message at all. We have a little bit more. But I want to take, I want to stop right here. And I want to lead you in a prayer where you can be found by him. Because he's not going to force you. This is your choice. So let's just quiet our hearts. Let's close our eyes for a moment. All of us can close our eyes. And if that is you, if you realize you're lost and you don't want to be, then I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me, along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are creator. You are holy. You are perfect and whole. And I'm not... I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. I'm lost. And my sin separates me from you. But I don't want to be lost anymore. And I realize there's nothing I can do to fix my situation. But you came to me in the person of Jesus. Jesus, I acknowledge that you lived a perfect life. And then you voluntarily died on the cross for my sin. You took the punishment I deserved to pay. Thank you for doing that for me. I choose to place my trust in you. I bring you my questions 
and my doubts and my fears and my failures and my sin and my rebellion, I bring it all to you and I leave it with you. And in exchange for all of that, I receive your forgiveness and your life and your very presence living in me through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out through the power of your love. God, I thank you for anyone who prayed that prayer. Heaven is rejoicing. <laughs> thank you for that. And I pray you'd help them grow in their relationship with you. And let me just mention um, if that, that anyone who prayed that prayer, I encourage you today, uh, this week, Alpha starts, and Alpha would be a great beginning in this relationship to join our Alpha, to be a part of our Alpha class. It starts this Wednesday. There's more information in the, inf the newsletter and on the web. Okay, so amen to all that. Now back up here. What's the second response? I mean, that, that's huge. That first response is huge. But there's another response here that this passage urges us to face. And, and that, I mean, we know how God, we know now how God feels about sinners, how God feels towards sinners. So how do we feel towards sinners? Right? How do we feel towards people who are far from God? How do we respond to them? Do, let me just ask it this way. Do the lost people around you feel love from you? Or do they feel judgment? Do they feel loved or judged? Do, do, lectured to, right? All that stuff. Do, do, do you find yourself intentionally moving towards lost people? or away from lost people. I mean, we, we know Jesus loves lost people, but do we, do I, do I, you know, I, I wish I've been wrestling with this. I wish I could say, oh, absolutely, but, but I can't. I mean, this is hard. There are a lot of times that I don't want to move towards lost people. I don't want to love them. There, there's a couple that kind of lives in our general area, and they're just just mean, okay? Uh, they're just kind of cold and nasty. They never wave back and all that stuff. And honestly, I don't want anything to do with them. I don't. I mean, that's my reality. I know I should have his heart. I know I should have Jesus' heart towards him, but I don't. So what do we do with that? What, what do I do with that? And if you can relate, what do you do with that? Do, are we just, to, to, is this the point of this message is to go out feeling guilty? I mean, is that the point here? I don't think that. I don't think so. I don't think guilt is what Jesus is after. What he's after is grace. What he's after is grace. And what I mean by that, what Jesus is after here is for us to see afresh how earnestly he pursued us while we were still sinners. And how lavishly he pours out his grace and his love upon us. We were lost, folks. We were lost and now we're found. And that amazing grace is what the people who live around me, that's what they need. It's what the people around you need. It's what everyone needs. And it's, it's what they're ultimately longing for. And so here, here's what I think. I believe our hearts can change. I believe my heart can change. Not just, oh, I need to do a better job. No, I think my heart can change and our hearts can change. The more that we see these people through the lens of our own story of grace. The more we see them through the lens of our own story. That was me. 
that even in my rebellion, God's grace pursued me and found me. And I'm so grateful he did. I am so grateful he did. See, he wants that for all people. So the more our hearts can be captured by and reminded of his grace towards us, the more we can see other people around us through that same lens. It's his grace that changes everything. Let's pray. So uh, as I often mention here, we're... We design our services so they move towards response. And so that's why the teaching comes early in the service. We want to move people towards response. And there are a couple specific responses that I want to invite you to consider. The the first one, I just want to pray over us here. So first of all, Lord, I just want to pray. I pray for your love and your grace to be poured out afresh, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and be reminded of what you saved us from and how you pursued us even while we were sinners. You pursued us and you pursue us even when we mess up. You pour out your grace. So would you pour that out? Would you pour out your love and grace in a fresh way upon us, your grace towards us? Thank you for your amazing grace. So now, Jesus, I want to ask that as we're kind of experiencing your grace afresh and just remind of that, that you would help us see all the people around us, the lost people around us through that same lens, to see them the way you see them, to see them the way through your heart, that you value them. They are precious to you. Help us see them that way. And help us, Lord, be instruments of love that we would move towards these people with grace and love rather than move away with judgment and condemnation. God, help us, Jesus, reflect your heart so that lost people would actually be drawn to us because of the way we love. I pray for that, Lord, and I know it's, it's not about guilt. It's about grace, us experiencing in a greater way your grace. So we, what we want to do here, um, there are a couple of responses we're going to have in the, the remaining time here. One of them um, is worship. We're going to sing a few worship songs that reflect this heart and where we can just open our hearts afresh to his grace for us and others. Um, But as we're doing that um, and engaging in that, however you want to engage in that, we we have the Lord's Supper available um, at tables around the room. And... um, and I want, I, I want to, you know, the, the bread, just a reminder, the bread represents Jesus' body given for us. It's about him and his sacrifice. And the juice represents his blood, which established this new covenant. It's a covenant that's not based on our work. It's based solely on what he's done. He's doing all of the hard, the heavy lifting in this, in this covenant. <laughs> our job is to trust, to look to him. He, he paid the price on the cross. So the juice represents that covenant, the establishing of that. 
So the symbolism here is very powerful in terms of our own experience of grace. And so I want to encourage you, whenever during the worship you want to go to a table and, and, and partake, um, you just take the bread and then dip it in the juice, and then you can partake there or go back to your seat. But as you're doing that, I want you a couple things. One, obviously, just a reminder of his grace towards you. This amazing grace towards you. But I also want you to do this. Either as you're going up to the table or as you're partaking or going back to your seat, what I want you to do is I want you to think of at least one lost person in your life. Someone that you desperately want to be at that table with you. And I want you to lift them to the Lord. You know his heart towards them and your heart towards them. And just ask for Jesus to continue to draw them. Ask for, for him to move so that they would come to know him and they would be found in him. So why don't we stand as uh, if you want to remain seated, you're, you're fine, or at some point sit down, but let's begin standing. And so Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper, the bread, the juice, the symbolism there, what they represent of your grace towards us. And I pray that as we're reminded of that grace, as we partake, we also would lift up these people that are dear to us, that, are, that we long to be at that same table with us, partaking of your life. And so we pray for that and hear our prayers this morning for them. God, set us free to respond and to worship you.